John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Accessed entry 356.ac1919, certificate number 25815, Disco Demolition Night. There may be more than records flying. Kids are running around. I don't see how the security guards really can do anything but apprehend a kid or two and uh, take them out. They're trying to rescue the uh, batting cage now out in short center. So, John, you and I have spent considerable time educating the, the far future about the importance of world's fairs and expos, uh, one of our favorite things. This is the first time, though, we have actually uh, performed our historical duty on an actual world's fair ground. That's right. A world's fair that I would like to add on a personal note uh, was the idea of my great Uncle Al. Your Uncle Al thought of the 1962 Thank you. Seattle. Thank you. Yeah, a big, big applause for Uncle Al. Al is Al. It appears like Al is here in the crowd. Al's been dead for 30 years, but Al was a Seattle City Councilman in the 1940s and 50s, and it, uh, the uh, I think you can find this in the historic record. Al Rochester had the spark of inspiration that uh, brought the World's Fair. Do you know what happened? Uh, a space needle fell on his head. Or, uh, no, uh, he died of old age. In the, no, no, not what, what killed him. What gave him the idea? Oh, what gave him the idea? <laughs> I'm pretty sure he did not die from the space needle falling on his head. I would have seen it in the papers. <laughs> this was back in the day when uh, Seattle City Council people were like, let's go Seattle, instead of now. What do they say now? <laughs> now they're like, Seattle, into the ocean. <laughs> that, was, that was your uh, campaign slogan. That was wasn't my it? campaign slogan, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're here in... Uh, in the Seattle Center at the Bumbershoot Music Festival. That's right. Um, Seattle audience. Is anyone a fan of our American League Baseball team, the Seattle Mariners? Very, very mild applause. Well, let me just say that we are, uh, we're performing in a children's theater to an audience of podcast listeners. You're not really going to get that sports <laughs> pandering that you're looking for. Well, so this is New Seattle. All these people moved here from Austin like in June. They're like, the Mariners, eh? <laughs> Uh, you know, the Mariners, uh, for my lifetime, have just been a constant source of disappointment and pain to me. They're in a crucial, as we record this, in this the year of our Lord, 2018, they're in a crucial 
series that could determine their pennant race with the A's, but they're five and a half games back. They lost last night in dispiriting fashion. Do you remember in, in also true Mariners fashion just a little while ago when it seemed like they couldn't be beat? Sure. There's a certain uh, kind of Seattleite who moved here in the very early 21st century who thinks of them as a great team in hard times. Yeah, a great team that just can't quite pull it off. And that's not true because, you know, your childhood and mine was full of going to the kingdom, a dispiriting place, and seeing dispiriting losses by the Mariners. Going to the kingdom and watching the ceiling fall on unsuspecting people. Killing people, and then people would go up and try to fix it, and they would die as well. So many so many deaths in our baseball-loving childhood. For the benefit of the future, baseball is kind of a national pastime for us, which means it kind of generally makes people feel good, especially if you're kind of an old, older white person. Um, and oh, no, 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 baseball And is, no one's really that into it, which is like... Baseball is a uh, sport that transcends race and culture and uh, gender. It is truly America's pastime. And I mean America in all of its melting pot glory. But no one is all that into it in the same way they might be into it. You know, it's incredibly uh, universally beloved and popular, but no one really likes it. It's like, uh, it's like NCIS or something. <laughs> <laughs> what about George Will? You're discounting George Will. It's true. George Will is the perfect example of a baseball fan in my mind. He might be the youngest one. We have no, I we have no idea if, uh, if future listeners of this show are just like super intelligent baseballs that have like gained intelligence over the millennia. It so seems that, unlikely. I mean, you cannot predict the future. I didn't yes and your idea. <laughs> <laughs> Baseballs are made of horsehide, right? Are they, are they horse ghosts? Or like, uh, could, these, could the futurelings be the, the ghost horses that inhabited their, their former corpses? Round ghost horses filled with like rubber. I used to have legs. The Mariners are currently in the longest uh, playoff drought in all four professional sports. Did you guys know this? When the Buffalo Bills managed to upset their way into the playoffs at the end of last December, that left the Mariners as the longest playoffless team. They have not been in the playoffs since 2001, Ichiro's rookie season, and also that was their record-setting 116-game season. They have come back from that with like 17 straight seasons of no playoff appearance. Didn't just a minute ago you say that no one cared about baseball? Yeah, I looked all this up. <laughs> I'm not a random person on the street planted here and asked to talk about baseball. I spent this morning on Wikipedia and baseballanalytics.com. When I was a kid, uh, the Mariners were in a larger AL West. It was before the 94 realignment. So I would often go to games and see them play the Chicago White Sox. That's right. Another lackluster AL West team My of our childhoods. Would take me to, the, to the, the cold, drafty kingdom, and we would sit high up. Look down at the unearth, the ungodly green astroturf. Yeah. Watch people slide all over it and have like lasting knee injuries because of it. Yeah, and there'd be like a boat show in the outfield. <laughs> first time I ever went to the kingdom was a boat show. Second time was a Sounders game. Uh, I think my first time was a Cub Scout encampment. Or uh, not encampment. That was weird. <laughs> no, but like but all the Cub Scouts <laughs> in the stadiums. Like a big Cub Scout, you know, like a, a scouting a domerie event. Yeah, a jamboree. Thank you. It was a big old jamboree. Those are in AstroTurf stadiums? Not they anymore. They look like parking garages? They tore all those down. Remember, uh, remember when the citizens of Seattle universally voted to replace to the kingdom? To implode the kingdom. <laughs> yeah, we all voted for it so many times. Oh, we voted for it every time they put it and on And they the finally ballot. were just like, the people just want us to do this. Let's yeah. do it. No, that's not true. You have long had a picture in your bathroom of the kingdom imploding. Yeah, my mom you, and I you, actually... I believe you told me you cannot urinate unless you're looking at a picture of the... <laughs> Kingdom imploding. Is that true? It's like a trigger. Yeah, I'm just like, ah, <laughs> ah, I'm so frustrated. And then I see the kingdom destroyed and I'm like, oh. Nobody put on that video right now. No, my mom and I went up to the 12th Avenue Bridge there and uh, like crack of dawn. I'm sure I was awake 
through the night and watch the kingdom explode and watch that big dusty cloud go over the city. It was a great Seattle moment. <laughs> it really does kind of sum up the Mariner's spirit, watching something kind of implode at the last minute. I mean, I feel, I feel like right now the temperature in the city of Seattle would really, uh, I think, would be galvanized around blowing something up downtown. <laughs> yeah, we love big clouds of smoke. That's what I've learned this summer. Uh, like the Mariners, the White Sox kind of had a lackadaisical, a lackluster 70s and 80s, let's say. They weren't the winningest team. They weren't even the winningest team in Chicago, a team famous for having a crappy National League team. Uh, in 1979... When our story takes place, the White Sox were so lackluster that their big star was one Chet Lemon, a better-than-average center fielder who was a three-time All-Star. He was literally the closest thing they had to a star. I'm doing the quotes thing with my, with my hand, futurelings, if you can, if you can imagine that. Um, in a timely note, Chet Lemon used to uh, not stand up for the national anthem. Really? What was his uh, reasoning? Uh, Jehovah's Witness. Are there any Jehovah's Witnesses in the crowd? Dead uh, silence. Would you like to share with us a short message about what the Bible really says? <laughs> uh, I feel like it's entirely possible that everyone in the future is a Jehovah's Witness. Well, I certainly don't want to offend them then. Good job. You, you, <laughs> your conversion rate is now 100%. You can stop going to people's houses on Saturday morning. But that's right. To, to stand for the uh, Pledge of Allegiance is, a, is like a false idol. Right. The they, they see it as a kind of idolatry. So he would always sit during the anthem with a no... Um, no repercussions. No repercussions whatsoever, because the president was uh, not a wacko. It was Jimmy Carter. Uh, three weeks after the date our story takes place, the, the biggest White Sox star enters this story. Uh, their manager was fired, and they called up their AAA guy from the Iowa Oaks, who turned out to be Tony La Russa, who went on to win three World Series with the A's and the Cardinals. But in July, when the story takes place, there's no Tony La Russa, there's no nobody. There's just Chet Lemon and a squad of nobodies. Nobody's coming to these games at Comiskey Park. It's a summer doldrum. Doldrums, exactly. The perfect summer for the perfect season for doldrums, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Summer. The owner of the White Sox at this time is a guy named Bill Veck, who's kind of an unusual character. He was the last like non-bajillionaire to own a baseball franchise. Just a regular guy that owned a sausage shop that somehow managed to buy a <laughs> yeah. baseball. Team. He won a baseball team like in a poker game, like the Millennium <laughs> Falcon. Uh, no, he had, he had worked for a series of sports-related jobs. Um, it, it was in his family. His dad did something with the Cubs, I guess. But he was just kind of a huckster showman type, you know, in Chicago, in, a, in an age when a, a kind of a big-talking guy like that could just own a baseball franchise with some buddies. Or start a, uh, a World's Fair in Seattle. There you go. He exactly was the, the kind of guy my own. He was the Al Rochester of, uh, of Chicago. And one of his secrets was just crazy promotion. I mean, he, uh, he would do crazy promotions. Like, if you go to the Mariners... Uh, I was there last year on potting soil night where they gave everybody a big bag of potting soil. Um, they did a sriracha night, which it turns out you can do because sriracha is not a trade name. The little rooster guy is a trade name, but sriracha is just a kind of condiment like ketchup. But they all were getting t-shirts and stuff, right? Yeah, but it just said sriracha and it had some colors that no one could sue them over, basically. It was like, hey, licensing-free uh, condiment night at, the, at Safeco Field. A couple of years ago, I went on throwing star night, and that was a really like, a <laughs> super bad promotion. This, is kind of, this story here is kind of the... The antecedent of throwing Star Night. You know, so Bill Veek would do big bicentennial parades and he would have guys come in dressed as aliens and he was the one that put the exploding scoreboard in at Comiskey where, you know, he would shoot fireworks off of little Catherine wheels if there was a home run. He's the one that said that a losing team with uh, bread and circuses uh, attracts more people than a losing team with nothing. He didn't even make one of them winning? <laughs> in this analogy, no, they're both losing. Just two losing teams, one with Take something else. two losing else. teams, 
one of them has some firecrackers. Uh, he also would, but he would, uh, he would go so far as to use in-game gimmicks that would actually annoy the commissioner's office. Um, he was the first one in 1951 when he owned the Browns. He hired Max Patkin, this guy who for the next few decades became the clown prince of baseball to be like a coach in the dugout. Have you ever seen the footage of this guy with the rubber face and the baggy pants? And he's like, whoa, I'm a baseball coach, but I'm not good at it. This was like a Harlem Globetrotters type of thing. Exactly. He'd run out and throw a, a, a pail of confetti at He'd the He'd be pitcher. swinging six bats instead of one. And it's funny because that's five more than the correct number. Yeah, that is funny. It's pretty funny. Uh, that late... translates even to the present day. <laughs> Smattering of laughter. Uh, that was actually in the 40s, I think. In, in, the in the early 50s, he was the one that signed, secretly signed a guy named Eddie Goodell, who was three foot seven inches tall, put him in the nine-year-old Bat Boys uniform with one-eighth on his back and had him go out there and draw a walk on four straight balls because when you're three foot seven inches tall, you're, the strike zone, your, your elbows are so close to your knees, there's essentially no strike zone. I would go to see that baseball game. Yeah, even if it was just nothing but walks. Did, did he ever, like, put a horse in a baseball uniform? And <laughs> the closest thing he did to that was... As a pinch runner? He put all the players in shorts in the mid-'70s. He was convinced that baseball would be played in shorts in the future. So he tried out a, uh, a White Sox uniform with shorts. We don't know that it won't. Every, yeah, everyone looks so good in a baseball jersey and shorts. That's something I learned every time I go to a game. <laughs> Dads look great in that outfit. <laughs> every time you go to the supermarket. <laughs> Uh, and in 1980, this is one of my favorites, he reactivated uh, White Sox legend Minnie Minoso, who was 54 years old, and had him pinch hit in three games just so the guy could say he played in four consecutive decades. So ways to get people to the ballpark without actually winning or coming close to winning in any way. Uh, but, you know, there are th some things to his credit. In 1947, for example, he was the manager, uh, he was the owner of the Indians, the president of the Indians, who uh, a few months after Jackie Robinson desegregated the National League, signed Larry Doby to play in the American League, the first black player in the American League. Um, always an open-minded guy by most accounts. Um, he introduced Doby to the team one at a time, watched who would not shake his hand, and then immediately traded or released those three guys. Wow, that's, uh, that's actually, like, I, I was thinking, well, sure, he, hired, he signed the first black player in the American League, He's a huckster. He, you know, he, he also got the little person and the but, you know, bearded woman. But he actually went down the line and had a, uh, had like a, a mini civil rights litmus test as he went. <laughs> He's like, you're out, you're out, you're out. That's great. Yeah, we should have, you know, there, not enough teams do a woke-off in the dugout before every game. I mean, I feel like we should, we should do that all the time now, just like... Uh, like before you go into the movies. <laughs> all, all public accommodations have to produce a person like, of no, color you're out, you're to out. see who will not shake their hand, and you can't be in the public sphere. You're out. Nope. Your Seattle citizenship has been revoked, and you have to move to Butte. I like that idea very much. <laughs> I like how Butte is your go-to place for racists to live. Sorry, Butte residents. Uh, my mom always said that if God were to give uh, the earth an enema, he would insert it at, in Butte. That's my mom, an oddly my mom specific is, thing for your... My mom is very prejudiced against minors. <laughs> and has thought a lot about where to insert an enema in the western United States, something that has never crossed my mind. No, I don't think she thought a lot about it. I think she just drove through Butte once. I thought that's what Crater Lake actually was. That was the, the, the remnants of the last time an enema had been inserted in the Northwest. Well, you're taking this and doing some Oregon slander. <laughs> I like the way you pivoted. Um, so that brings us to July 12, 1979. Bill Veek's son, Mike, is in charge of running promotions. 
And he's been in talks with a local radio station to do what they think is going to be just a killer, killer promotion that's going to bring people, families down to the park. Does Mike have his father's inspiration, or is he one of these guys that, that sort of uh, uh, never had any ideas of his own and just sort of following in his father's footsteps? On tonight's recording, he will be 0 for 1 in the idea department. <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, the White Sox had recently done a disco night playing and celebrating disco music, and a local Chicago DJ, a shock jock, rock, rock station shock jock named Steve Dahl, who was on WLUP, The Loop, 98, 97.9 actually, um, had contacted the White Sox about doing an anti-disco promotion, equal time. You know, there were equal time laws even then. So we should say, uh, with a little, for a little background, that in the mid-70s, this, uh, this style of music that, that sort of started in, in Europe, in, uh, in discotheques, in dance clubs, uh, sort of swept the United States. It became a... Um, you know, originally it was a, a sort of counterculture in the cities, and then with the popularity of the Saturday Night Fever uh, film. Soundtrack and, and soundtrack, film 1977. It became incredibly mainstream. It became mainstream in my own house. Well, my mother and, uh, and sister both, like, loved that record, played it So over. that's the thing. Like, my memories of disco are not colored by any kind of social or racial... Uh, quality at all, because I imagine the Bee Gees and ABBA, I imagine kind of fresh-faced white people in hilarious jumpsuits singing this music. Right, but initially the music that, came Yeah, that up, was a gentrified version of, of uh, disco that I'm remembering. It came out of the urban clubs. It was a, it was a, a music, a style of music that was, the artists were largely black and Latino. It came out of R&B and funk, so, right. you know, much like rock and every other American musical movement in history, it came from black music. And this mid-70s period was the initial period of gay liberation in the United States, and clubs were sort of uh, organizing places of, of the gay liberation movement, and so this music was the soundtrack to that as well. Sure, it was gay culture, it was Latino culture. From We know from Saturday Night Fever it was Italian-American culture, it was African-American culture. It was very urban, uh, It was, but it was everything rock culture in the mid to late 70s was not. Rock had turned into a phenomenon of the heartland, right? Well, no, rock was very popular, uh, but this was the era of album-oriented rock, which was no longer a singles-based form of music, right? right? I mean, there was still AM radio, there were still pop singles, but hard rock, heavy rock, was a thing like famously Led Zeppelin, uh, Black Sabbath, they couldn't get their songs played on the radio. They were critically derided, but they were selling loads and loads of albums and people were coming to these stadium shows because they tapped into... I mean, this was also the era of the, of the motorcycle culture, like choppers. It's, it's surprising when you look back to 1977 how popular choppers were. Like, it was, it was a thing like... I, I, don't, I can't even think of a... It's like being a baseball fan, except with choppers. <laughs> except with a slightly more choppers. Yeah, there are no choppers now. I challenge you to find a chopper, but well, then there's choppers everywhere. That explains why every picture of a rock band from this period is kind of, um, you know, starting to age white men with facial long hair, facial hair, leather, denim. They weren't really aging. They were just so addicted to heroin <laughs> that it was sucking the life out of... That sucking was, the color out of their hair. That was another gap. Heroin and alcohol and rock, coke and quaaludes on the disco side. There were a ton of, uh, the way they dressed, leather and denim versus kind of gold lame and jump jumpsuits. And if you um, like both, you can listen to Blondie. <laughs> right. Blondie was a new wave band that put out a disco single and had a huge hit with it. And they were not the only ones, you know. This is the era when the Rolling Stones realized to stay on the radio, they're going to have to 
you know, put Miss You on some girls and they're going to have to do hot stuff. Mm-ts, Rod, mm-ts, mm-ts. They're going to need yeah. the beat, right? So they appropriate the beat. Rod Stewart becomes a disco artist. Kiss puts a, a, a disco beat on I Was Made for Loving You. They sure did. Uh, Paul McCartney thinks that Wings will be back if he puts a disco beat on Goodnight Tonight. Well, and this um, happened with reggae music. Do you remember? It was a, sort of in a similar time. Eric Clapton put out a reggae song. Um, the Pretenders had a couple of reggae tunes on their first record. The Police were essentially a reggae band. I mean, there was a lot of co-op. The Clash, you, you know, or as much of a reggae band as the Police. Well, so the, here we get into where people are going to boo me. But yes, the Clash are a reggae band. <laughs> they're a my, white don't, reggae Don't band. get me wrong. They're my favorite white <laughs> reggae band. By, they're the only white reggae band that matters. No, that's wrong. <laughs> the best white reggae band is the Pretenders. Oh, no, their two <laughs> reggae songs are terrible. <laughs> When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout so, yeah. so a lot of white rock artists were incorporating this stuff into their music, even though uh, it was really n- not along the lines of uh, kind of a, a you know a, a white guy with lead guitar singing very soulful male earnest things. Um, that could not have been more different than kind of the less party dance friendly what a rockist would have seen as tr- trivial and synthetic qualities of incredibly listenable disco music. What's wonderful about the 1970s, and I don't know if any of you are are older than 27, but those of you who are older than 27 will remember there was a period in the 80s and 90s where the 70s were thought of as this dark period in music where everything was terrible. They were wearing bell bottoms, can you believe it? But now we can look back and realize that that was in some ways the richest period of American uh, pop music because there were, I mean, this was the era... Like, yeah, disco on the radio, yacht rock, there was the stadium rock, there was, I mean, there were folky ballads. I'll, I, I, have the, I have the list of the top 100 singles of 1979, and, and? It, is, it is hilarious, though... The way is it, it like disco, 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 Doobie Brothers, disco, 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 <laughs> Doobie, Bro- Doobie Brothers, and Doctor Hook, and then right. <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden, like Foreigner arrives on the scene. The biggest record of 1979 was The Knack. Ah, that was the number one record of the year. Was it My Sharona? Or? My Sharona, yeah. and it, and that that like introduced new wave to the to the popular culture, right? The Knack. Right, but there was an element in which this kind of rock snobbery about disco looked like artistic snobbery, although now we can look back and see that all these disco songs were incredibly great. Um, great. uh, But to them, they were kind of blind to whatever the racial or homophobic or even misogynistic elements might have been. You know, uh, rock was where 
guys sang about their soulful concerns, but if you wanted to hear Donna Summer sing about uh, what it was like to be a woman in 1979, disco was the main outlet for that. It wasn't really their soulful concerns that guys were singing about it as much as it was Satan, Satan, Satan. <laughs> You're saying disco is God's music and rock is, is Satan's music? Is that I'm the divide sure you have in mind? Disco is God's music, but this was, you know... No, uh, heaven will almost certainly have disco. Think of it, the gold lame, the swirling lights... I mean, Disco Club is as close as you were going to get to a kind of a heavenly vibe. If you look at the cover of uh, the Bee Gees Spirits Having Flown, they are truly in heavenly garb, right? They're in soft focus with halos. Think about ABBA in their white sparkling jumpsuits. Imagine just dying in a plane crash and then Bjorn and Benny and, uh, you know, ABBA is there to welcome you wearing that garb. You would be, you would know where you were. I would. I would for sure. (laughs) (laughs) As opposed to like if Ozzy was there, you'd be like, oh. Is this, uh, is this heaven? No, it's Sweden. <laughs> uh, and this kind of, you know, this kind of uh, conflict, you know, rockism versus poptimism is a, a kind of a battle that continues today, even though, you know, I was born in what I would have thought was the post-disco era. Like when I was first aware of what music in, was on the Hot 100 that me and all my friends were listening to, it was the same year that Thriller came out. And here we have a Motown artist who came from a disco band who is just indisputably better than any guitar band on earth. A better musician, you know, better live act. Just uh, Disco was not great live, but Michael sure was. And the, the argument seemed to be over. Even if disco was still a punchline, we had lived in the world it had created, and rock was now runner-up. We decided that we could not use the word disco. Partly as a result, it's, it, it, you could make an argument as a result of this event that we're discussing. And Risco, Rick D's um, novelty songs and, and Disco, disco Duck. Right. And, yeah. uh, and uh, I, don't, I don't know, by applause, how many people had Sesame Street Disco in their house? Uh, we had Sesame Street Disco. Yeah, Sesame Street Disco. That's a, that was a great album. Doing the Pigeon, uh, Rubber Ducky, You're the One, C is for Cookie. Even the Henson Workshop fell under the spell of the disco beat. These were great tracks. The thumping spell. But it's true that, I mean, this is, now we think of a red-blue divide in the United States as being something that's really, like, culturally uh, a, a pretty, it's, it's hardening and it's in some ways hardened off. But at this point in time, we didn't, we didn't really see America that way. But there was, um, this was the beginning of a kind of cultural separation between you you said before like blue collar uh white dudes but i mean it was more universal than that certainly but it was it was a contrast between the culture of concentrated urban centers that were very diverse and rural not rural but suburban america um and it didn't ha- yet have a religious connotation like it does now there wasn't like traditional values although if there had been people would have been like What's with the village people's costumes? Well, know? sure, but also traditional values are not exactly like best uh, best described by Black Sabbath. Right? Those, aren't, <laughs> those aren't the traditional values that we think of now. Uh, so, I mean, it was a period where... Lawrence Welk was still on the air for those people. Lawrence Welk was on the air, but also like they were selling bongs in Playboy magazine. This is the era of uh, when Playboy would be on people's coffee tables who were normal Americans. Maybe not any of your grandparents, but there, there were, you know, it was like you could read a Playboy on an airplane. I remember sitting next to a guy as a kid who was just reading the articles. <laughs> and when you talk about the culture war element of it, I remembered that as a kid, we had some, I don't know where we had gotten this, maybe it was in my grandparents' house, but just some book about the dangers of modern music. And really what this focused on from a uh, 
you know, religious cultural point of view was the dangers of the thudding beat in so much modern music. Because rock had, uh, rock had kind of buried the beat in the 70s. You could not dance to a Led Zeppelin record. The, and, well, yeah, Led Zeppelin, uh, well, a lot of rock became very artistic and it was, um, it, well, they were un unusual time signatures. It didn't have that. It's all Prague's fault. And you know, in the 1960s, if you listen to a, a, a 1960s pop recording, often the loudest instrument by far is the tambourine. <laughs> like it is to put on any any Motown record, and it's like, <laughs> and then like somewhere in there, there's a band. But this book kind of had the default Southern Baptist point of view in the 70s and 80s, which was that this kind of thudding beat were. And it's incredibly racist. We're jungle rhythms. Right. Then. Well, that started in the It's 50s, the same right. stuff we said about rock. And that's the funny thing, because in those days, the album burnings were against rock. You know, rock was not yet the default music. Once rock became what we thought of as, you know, the default alternative in the, the pre-hip-hop era. It's hard um, to imagine now in the time of Christian new metal bands, <laughs> right? I mean, every single megachurch has some band up there that's like, Jesus! And that's, you know, considering that those were taboo rhythms uh, until, you know, until the 90s, really. Right. Um, and it's funny, I think, that these rock... Um, you know, these edgy rock guys would kind of ally themselves with the burners of art. Because historically, that's not the side you want to be on, right? I don't think the rock guys did. I think, you know, like shock jock DJs. Uh, sure. When I say rock guys, I mean guys like Steve Dahl, who actually had lost his job when his previous station went disco. See, like there was, a, there was a business component here. That'll for turn a person against, uh, <laughs> against disco music if your station goes disco. And he was sitting there with his big sideburns like, what? But it's an early example of this Trump era phenomenon where this guy's just doing some self-serving thing for his bottom line and he angries up a bunch of yokels who are like, yeah, I'll bring my Motown records to a baseball game and blow them up. So what was the stunt? The stunt was, you know, uh, Steve Dahl's radio station being 98, you know, 97.9, Loop 98. You would get in for 98 cents to this game if you brought your disco records. And again, ushers at the time noticed that people were not being super strict about the definition of disco. It was really just... And you weren't bringing your disco records so they would play them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They, they, had, they were going to do requests all night. They had little stereos set up all around the baseball stadium. People were like, my turn. This was a twi-night doubleheader against the Tigers to make up for a previous rainout. The White, the White Sox, again, were a lack, lackluster 40 and 46 in July. They were going to, uh, between the games, put all the disco records that people had brought into a big crate in center field and blow it up. Steve Dahl led, every morning on the radio, he led his anti-disco army, and he would play a few seconds of a disco record and then scratch the needle all across oh, it. Oh, take people, that, disco. People would cheer at what we were doing to this force that was threatening our rock. This was only 15 years after uh, the, they were burning Beatles records. Well, sure. John Lennon said that they were bigger than they Jesus. They were going to be bigger than Jesus. And again, like, why would you want to be the guy burning art? You know, historically, that's, that's either an invader, that's Rome sacking Alexandria, or the conquistadors burning the Aztec codexes, codices? Codices. Codices, or the British burning the Library of Congress, or it's an oppressor. It's a, you know, it's a, it's Savonarola in Florence burning all the Renaissance art. It's Nazis burning whatever they call decadent art. Um, in, uh, ancient China in 200 BC, they would actually burn um, edgy scrolls and then they would bury the scholars alive. Really? Which is really, when you think about it, more effective because they can't make new scrolls. 
I can't, I can't think of a better descriptive... Like, Donna Summer can still make a record, even if they blow up a few of them in Chicago, but... I can't think of a better descriptive term for uh, the Omnibus Project than edgy scroll. <laughs> I do hope we exist in parchment form in the future, well, but, so, uh, but unburnable. Well, I think, you know, uh, people who are... Who, because this DJ ha was, was encouraging his listeners to become a kind of... Cult. Cult, a little, an army, like, we're against disco, right? Like... Fire up your El Camino and come to town and let's like, <laughs> let's like cause some trouble. And you know, that's just any demagogue, right? All you need is an excuse if it's that rock is better than disco or if it's that there, we need a, a bigger wall on the border. It probably has to tap into something, but you're right. It doesn't have to be a pre-existing. People didn't have to be getting up being like, when is someone going to speak out against Gloria Gaynor? Right. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's much easier to, to posit your, like your, uh, even super tramp record against like a <laughs> Donna summer record. As, I mean, like think of the tinfoil hats that are like Sandy hook was fake. Like, and there are, tens of thousands of people that are living in that reality. So it's easy to demagogue people if they're not, uh, if, if all the news they're getting is from Cream Magazine. So, uh, so Sorry for that reference. That was <laughs> super old dude reference. <laughs> so Mike Vec and, uh, and Steve Dollar hoping they'll get more than the usual 15,000 people who have been coming to games at Comiskey. They're surprised to see 50,000 people showing up. It's a sellout. And even once they close the gates, more people are sneaking in because they're so eager to be at what is turning into a kind of a happening. 20,000 more people in the streets, I read. 50,000 in the stadium and 20,000 outside clamoring to get in. So many clamoring to get in, the extra security is sent to the gates to keep them out, which will become important later in our story. <laughs> um, concessions are being openly stolen. Like, nobody can sell beer because beer is just disappearing as fast as they can put it out. Everybody over 40 is noticing the strong smell of pot uh, wafting through the stadium. If you want to think about how uh, threatened the rock people felt, here's the top records of 1979. The top one, as I said, the knack because My Sharona is the greatest record. It's the catchiest record ever made. Although the bridge is terrible. I'm sorry. Don't at me. But then, then we go Donna Summer, Chic, Rod Stewart's Do You Think I'm Sexy, his crossover disco. <laughs> Appropriation. Uh, the, uh, the anomalous Peaches and Herb reunited record. Feels so which good. Which is a real panty dropper. And then Gloria Gaynor, <laughs> Donna Summer, Village People, Anita Ward's Ring My Bell. Um, Ring my bell. So, there are no, there's uh, Donna Summer's cover of MacArthur Park. <laughs> Try that on for size. Bee Gees. I mean, the first rock record is all the way down at number 19, the Doobie Brothers' What a Fool Believes. And even and What a Fool Believes is kind of disco. It is a little disco. Like, so the, that's like Eagles One of These Nights. That's some band being like, uh, are we going to chart if we don't have a little uh, beat on this thing? There's a, I mean, you know, Billy Joel, I guess, is at 28. So there's, you know, the, the, um, the people who felt like this was part of a culture war had a lot of evidence that everywhere they turned, something was going So everybody brings in their disco records, and, and uh, they're supposed to surrender them, but not all do, apparently, because during the first game, which the White Sox lose to the Tigers 4-1, records are being hurled at players. <laughs> and, every, and it's funny, but every time I see interviews about this, it's always the black and Latino players who are getting records thrown at them, and you kind of wonder, hey, I wonder if these people had targets in mind. Can you imagine how lethal... A, a, a fully sleeved vinyl album thrown from the top deck of a baseball stadium would be? Sure, or what if you, you unsleeve it? It's, it's throwing star night if you unsleeve it, you know? <laughs> um, 
between the games, Steve Dahl drives out there in a Jeep wearing kind of a fake military fatigue type uniform of his anti-disco army. And a and helmet. A, and a helmet, yeah. He looks like <laughs> he looks like a motorcycle yeah, he's, guy. He's Patton. Oh, right. He looks like motorcycle guy in the village, people. <laughs> Do you think he knew? I doubt, I doubt he thought so. And he, he announces to the crowd that this is no longer a baseball game. It's now officially the world's largest anti-disco rally. <sighs> and he gets some chant of disco sucks, disco, disco sucks, sucks going. He shows them the crate that's been wheeled out to center field and says, we're going to blow them up real good. At which point they do, and they may have miscalibrated the amount of explosives you would need at a baseball game. There's probably not a lot of data here because they leave a huge crater in center field. <laughs> it's, like the, it's like the time that uh, Keith Moon staged a little explosive in the in his kick drum when the, when the Who played on the Smothers Brothers, and he hit the explosive, and it was like a pipe bomb. It killed eight <laughs> people. There used, to be, there used to be ten Smothers Brothers. <laughs> well, there, were, there were ten guys in the Who, uh, but, but unfortunately, Pete Townsend happened to be like like bending down in front of the drums, and he said he never regained hearing in that Oh, ear. that was it. Yeah, That's that why Pete thing. can't hear. That bomb. Wow. Uh, I don't know if anyone was deafened by this, but it was a lot bigger than people were thinking. And when they tried to clear the, 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 you know, he takes off in his Jeep, and the Tigers pitcher even comes out to warm up for game two. But that's when the fans start realizing that all the security is at the gates. No one's between them and the field. They're all pretty, um, they're nicely beard and weeded up at this point. And people just start hopping over the fence so they can run the bases or hang out or see the crater or whatever. And once you get to a tipping point of enough disco-hating young people out there, everybody starts running onto the field and doing exactly what they want to do. So what it gets to is, uh, you know, massive throngs of people everywhere. Fires are lit in the stands and in the outfield. Wow, this uh, you've got, sounds amazing. You've got a guy shinning up, and <laughs> shinning up the foul pole and then sliding down. Um, big camera rigs getting tossed over. Home plate is dug up. So, you know, the bases have literally been stolen. Um, kids are actually getting to third base behind third base, if you know what I mean. Uh, and so the... <laughs> and you don't want to play on that afterwards. Uh, and the White Sox try to regain order. Harry Carey was then with the White Sox, and he gets up there, holy cow, what's happened? Let's sing, take me out to the ball game, and then we'll all take our seats again. And it does not work. <laughs> the stadium has a nice, polite, please return to your seats, and that does not trouble anyone at all. You, you never went, I don't think, to a stadium metal concert in the early 80s, but this is what they were all like. So that there was an expectation that, of course, this is what we do when we go to a stadium. Yeah, let's go. Like, let's start a fire. Would I mean, people actually steal home plate? Uh, there were no home plates typically at a Judas Priest concert, <laughs> uh, un unless you brought the one from the Disco right. Sucks uh, riot. Plenty of third base, I hear, but no home plates. Um, 45 minutes later, the police are finally called, and they come in in full riot gear uh, because it's now a full-fledged riot on horses and make 39 arrests. And people gradually kind of, you know, the, the, the purge ends. The, the, everybody's mind clears. Maybe they put on some credence or something, and people are like, whoa. Uh, you know, this is the America that they talk about when they say, make America great again. <laughs> like, this is it. More riots between <laughs> Twinite doubleheader games. That's what I want to see. It's not as good an acronym, right? M-R-B-T-N-D-H-G. doesn't fit on a red hat. Uh, the, the White Sox want to play, but the field is full of broken glass. There's puddles of beer. The ground crew is up there trying to clean up whatever bodily fluids they can. But Sparky Anderson of the Tigers is PO'd, and he says his boys will not play no matter what. He, he saw an opportunity here to sure. get this game forfeited. Because guess what? It's a win. Uh, they, and the next day, the, major, the commissioner's office announces it was indeed a forfeit, which means that the Tigers win with what score? Do you guys know this? 
Nine to zero. Nine to zero. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things about baseball is how punitive forfeits are. You, yeah. you lost every inning. <laughs> you, you, you deserve to forfeit every single one of those innings. And in fact, 1979, that was the last forfeit in American League history. We've, we've made it through 30 years without a subsequent uh, rock-powered Time to set off some kind of forfeit. bomb in the middle of center field at a Mariners game. Nope, nope, John did not suggest that. <laughs> I'm sure glad. Oh, that's right, no shush. Well, the, the people listening to this show are like 7,000 years in the future. Right, they but the Mariners, and even 7,000 years in the future, the Mariners are still well below um, 500 <laughs> go, going into September. It's a baseball team entirely of Cthulhu's, and they still can't <laughs> score a run. Yeah, because all the other teams have just as many tentacles, so it's just as hard to hit a fly ball. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com slash start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n dot com slash start um so 50 to seventy thousand people is still believed to be the largest crowd in white Sox history to this day um, and incredibly, this although this was a debacle, and people even in its time recognized the the, the racial and homophobic overtones of it. I mean, there was a, quite a bit of critical appraisal of it even then, as a as a kind of weird and ugly cultural moment. It also presaged what became a nationwide dis. Affection with disco music. It may have accelerated the nationwide disaffection. Certainly, the disco bubble popped immediately in late 1979 through 1980, and that happens to musical movements from time to time. So I don't know if we can say an alternate history where they just do potting soil night on July 29th. Disco is still super popular, and you know, Nile Rodgers is president right now. I, I don't know if that is actually true. But interestingly, when this, uh, when this event happened, the number one record in the country was Bad Girls by Donna Summer, which is an incredible album, by the way. Um, uh, and then immediately afterward, The Knack got to the top of the charts. And then for the rest of the year, there were only two records at the top of the charts, In Through the Outdoor, the final Zeppelin record, and maybe its first appearance on the top of the charts, and then the long run by the Eagles. So that was the that was the end result of Disco Demolition Night. This, the this, Eagles got back to number one. This is this is what America decided was. I mean, this is their nine runs scored in a game. <laughs> They're like, oh, you don't like disco? Try the long run. And that concludes Disco Demolition Night. Entry 356.ac1919, certificate number 25815. Uh, In the omnibus. Yeah. John's never actually done this show. Certificate, <laughs> certificate number 25815. In the omnibus. 
Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, our tweets are archived at Omnibus Project, and our uh, Twitter handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Please do not allow social media to exist in your era. If it does, it is one more failing of our time that we have not eliminated it completely. Uh, you can go to my Instagram page, at John Roderick, where I take pictures of every meal I have, and the rest of the time, they're blurry pictures of my dog in bed with me. Uh, if the future is interested in watching a man separate uh, different bolts and screws into different coffee mugs, mm -hmm. that would be the Instagram account for them. Often I'll go a whole week where it's just my progress as I sort rusty bolts. You, oh, you think I'm kidding. You gotta document this stuff. Um, I, uh, uh, I would like to recommend that if you are on Facebook, that you get off of it immediately, but if you insist on being there, you should go to our Futurelings Facebook page where a lot of smart people are talking about smart things, and it's very funny, but it is not a dating site. No. Do not use it as such. It's all very chaste. You can email us, you can email us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com, and if you want to send us physical objects, you may mail them through the, through the mists of time at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Listeners, we speak to you from the post-disco distant past. We have no idea how long our post-disco civilization will survive before we all arrive at ABBA heaven together. Disco's back, so it may, it may prolong our suffering. Maybe we'll have ABBA disco heaven here on Earth. It's the, the second coming of ABBA. Let's four, start, let's, four Swedish figures descend from the clouds. Let's start it immediately. When our theme music plays at the end, I want everybody out of their seats. <laughs> we hope and pray that this uh, catastrophe that precipitates uh, this return will never come. But if the worst comes soon, this very recording could be our final word to you. But we certainly hope the Providence will allow us to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. They're not dancing. Wait for the beat to drop. We're going to do a little Q&A if people, if anybody has questions for us. We still have a few minutes that we left at the end. Yeah, we saved some time in case you have questions. We, uh, this is only our second public appearance. Uh, Ken and I, Ken never leaves his readout and I'm deep in my bunker. <laughs> so It's I, our second public appearance as a podcast. I mean, you were... Yeah, you were on TV for 75 consecutive, I know you like me to mention it every time, right. 75 consecutive episodes of, uh, of Jeopardy. And John left the house last night and uh, got burgers at University Village. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> I did go to University Village. I got a stuffed pizza. The only, the, the, the real kind of pizza, Chicago style stuffed pizza. Wow, I got one woo. <laughs> Normally I just get hissed out of the room. All right, so this is a children's theater, so we will be able to hear you if you just shout out your question. Does anyone have a question? Yes. Did you ever get to see Ken Griffey Jr. in the Kingdom? I, I did. Did you? I did. Yeah. Uh, several, many times. I saw Griffey Jr. and Griffey Sr. in the same lineup at the Kingdom, which was exciting. That, yeah. only, that was only one season. Yeah, that was nice. I, uh, my dad and I, the last thing I went to in the Kingdom, uh, my dad and I went to see a... Um, Black Sabbath show. No, a game. No. We went to see uh, the Seahawks play uh, against Wisconsin. 
the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> a colleg- they played a collegiate they, team. They played a collegiate team. University of Wisconsin. <laughs> the Seahawks were so bad, they lost to the University of Wisconsin. No, they played, they played the, uh, the Packers, and there were so many Packers fans that had come in RVs, and they were all wearing their cheesehead hats. And the stadium, and it was a middle-of-the-day game with two teams that didn't weren't like in the contention, and yet there were 40,000 people there. And I realized then that the biggest rock concert in the world at the time couldn't get 40,000 people to a thing, and there were this many people here to watch this dumb sports game, and I realized I had chosen wrong. <laughs> and yet baseball still claims to be the national pastime. Uh, yeah, there maybe? I don't know. Are we pointing to different people? Yes. No, I think you're pointing to the same person. You, in the plaid shirt. Awesome. So I was just curious about process uh, in terms of t- picking topics. And also, do you guys have a list? And if so, how long is it? <laughs> Ken was just looking at his list. Uh, well, I mean, you know, he and I both spend a lot of time just thinking about all kinds of this dumb stuff, like per- presumably we all do. And uh, the reason we started the show... You know, when we initially conceived of the show, it was, um, we tried to come up with an idea that would appeal to people. And so we had- And I wanted something that would not constrain us at all. You know, whatever I thought was interesting, I could just talk about that because that's that's the best kind of white privilege. Something just occurred to me. (laughs) Something just occurred to me. I feel I should talk about it for an hour. (laughs) This is what the world needs. Me, a white guy talking about something I thought of once. But our initial idea was we'd have a show called The Worst which was a show where we were going to pick the worst thing uh, in every kind of thing we could think of. It's the stories of famous failures and bloopers and whatnot. Yeah, which is basically what we are doing. It's just we don't characterize it that way. But we were on an airplane to Atlanta together. We're sitting next to each other. Every stewardess came by and wanted a picture with Ken because that's <laughs> right in his demographic. It's not you know, a thing. Like, uh, and uh, we were sitting there and we were like thinking up uh, ideas for the worst and when there was a, uh, some silence went by. And then I said do you like this idea? And Ken was like, no, not really. And I was like, let's not do this show the worst. That seems like a bummer. It seems like the only upside was every show we could be like, I'm Ken and I'm John, and this show is the worst. Yeah, right. It's like we were on Nickelodeon in the 90s. <laughs> but then immediately uh, we were like, let's do a show that fits with us. And we were like, well, and immediately we picked a name that 90% of the American people won't know what it means. And we started like brainstorming ideas that were just exactly the kind of show we do. So uh, the research we do is is largely just driven by our own. I, yeah, I, have, I looked at the list on my phone. I have about 80 ideas, <laughs> including Ted Danson in blackface. So I can't wait for that one. <laughs> but yeah, it really is. It's not, um, people do send us ideas, but this is mostly just me thinking about something weird or reading something weird or being like, I bet there's a show. Well, you know, and I've been trying, I, I wanted to do um, The Church of the Subgenius, but it's taken me like eight months to even learn enough about the Church of the Sub. I mean, I've lived with it my whole life, and I still don't understand it. You're just sketching so the contours. Like, One of these days, I'm going to have enough for a show. Uh, any other questions? I feel like there was a hand in this general area. Oh, it was Ari. <laughs> That's actually Marla's, your seven-year-old daughter's question. My seven-year-old daughter cannot be at a show without making herself the center of it. So can't what? She, can't she ask? Can't you ask him at home, Marlo? Where'd she get that from? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> What's your what's your question, darling? Shout it out. Don't have your mother as a proxy. What's your favorite podcast? My favorite podcast? Oh, the favorite one that we did. Oh, favorite episode of this show, Marlo? That's a really good question, Marlo. 
Uh, I had a neighbor ask me that last night. He was leaving, and uh, I hear you have a podcast. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, what's it rated? It's <laughs> like, I don't know, like PG at best, I guess. No, every podcast is rated 4.5 stars, right? I mean, it's like, <laughs> the rating system is totally meaningless. But his second question was, if you could listen to any one episode, what, what should I start with? And I did not have a good answer. Yeah, that's a super good question, Marlo. I mean, I, uh, Ken and I both have bring different topics to the show, right? And a lot of the time, Ken's ideas are ones that are new to me, and I learn a lot. Vice uh, versa. And so it would be hard to pick. You know, it's, what ends up happening is when he leads a show like tonight, he has a bunch of facts, and I am sort of learning about it. You had the whole Hot 100 for 1979. Yeah, you well, no, I was really playing solitaire. I just had that memorized. <laughs> And then when I have the idea, right, I have all the facts, and Ken is learning about it. So it's a dynamic that I guess it's interesting every time. You don't have a single episode you can point to? I ended up like? recommending to my neighbor Boysenberries, because he was a guy who had just asked what it's rated. Right. And uh, that's kind of a show about a you know Amer classic Americana, fruit and summer fruit stands and theme parks, um, California in the 60s. I mean, the second show we ever did was about the defenestrations of Prague, and that may still be one of my favorites just because I got to talk about the defenestrations of Prague and I can't do that at home. <laughs> you can't? No, no one wants to hear it. Oh, I, get, I get stopped right away. And that's true when I try and talk about it on buses too. People are like, let me stop you there. Uh, anyone else? Yes. Um, have you noticed any of the ideas that, you, uh, that you've talked about over the course of the series thus far, or, or the ideas that you've been researching, do any of common architects or common themes or common people or anything that you notice that may link these sort of inane and... and uh... Hey! <laughs> and, you know, and this is something that we have never, like, spoken of openly, but every one of these things roughly, like, suggests a kind of future apocalypse. Every one of these is a tiny little element that kind of takes us closer to the, the fall of civilization. On John's InfoWars chalkboard at home. So, you know, so the idea is always like, these are not just like crazy bloopers or Ken's amazing trivia facts and bloopers. And fun. And fun. They're all little elements where things have gone awry. Uh, either, you know, like events in history or ideas or places. Uh, where things, you know, events like this one where you're like, huh, is that, can we look back at that and see how, like how we that, got to this that moment? it foreshadowed where we are? Because the initial idea was this is a time capsule that will be preserved after the apocalypse. And so, you know, we're kind of walking people up to it. Well, we've never said that out loud. But. Also, World's Fairs have come up a lot and right. Nazis. I will bring up the Nazis if you let any silence go by. <laughs> and in this, in this episode, we didn't bring it up until now. And yeah, this, this whole podcast is mostly me just trying to keep talking, so John just doesn't say, <laughs> when Hermann Goering took over the <laughs> Luftwaffe. Anyone else? Surely there are some questions. You have four minutes left before they usher us out. Anyone want to ask Ken a question about his Jeopardy Does anyone want to ask John a question does. about 90s indie rock? <laughs> Yes, uh, my sister. Let's go. <laughs> what really front-loaded the, the audience here. I was just wondering how much of it is off the cuff and how much is prepared as far as the back and forth, or is it all off the cuff? 
none of the back and forth is prepared. We don't. We don't. As is usually evident. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Ken. When Ken has a topic, he usually sends it to me at eleven o'clock the night before, and then I, you know, lay in bed with my phone and and start to think about it. But generally, like we know the basic ideas of everything. We're you know we don't have. To, it's very unusual that one of us will send the other a topic where we don't have some familiarity with it. Like right. you, have to, you don't have to Google it to know what it is. Yeah, I mean, most of the time, Ken will send me something and I'll say, wow, great idea, right? Because we already like have a basis in it. Uh, I don't tell Ken my topic until he's sitting in front of a microphone. Typically after we've done, we usually do two shows in a day, and after we do my show, I'll be like, John, what are we doing now? Like, tell me your topic. And, and then, I say something like, wow, I don't know, Hitler? I've been and he's thinking, like, no! <laughs> <laughs> Hitler's dog. No. We can't do Hitler's dog every show, John. <laughs> but if you look at our shows, Tuesday shows are ones that are led by Ken and Thursday shows are led by me. And I think you can you start to see a through line of our different interests and just our different kind of like worldview. Yeah, I'm most aware when it's something I don't know much about, like your, um, you know, your uh, expertise about... Uh, hardware of all kinds, not just military hardware, but also guitars and uh, uh, cars, 20th century cars, and you know stuff like that. Where I don't feel like I have any expertise, that's when I have to do some googling. And Ken likes to do things that he doesn't know anything about, like math. Oh yeah, like John has never done a theoretical math. Episode. No, and Ken's always like, "Oh, let's talk about you know 11-dimensional math," and I'm like, "Do you know anything about that?" And he's like, "Not really." That's a great way to sell the show to people, by the way. <laughs> hey, listen to this podcast about 11-dimensional math. Yeah. This is the end, not the beginning, so. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, maybe this is well established, but how did you two meet and then presumably like each other enough to want to talk to each other for a half hour at a time? <laughs> we met at Bumbershoot. Not this year. <laughs> we met at a brunch, right? Uh, yeah. John Hodgman was in town, and he got invited. He's a friend of John's, and he got invited to a brunch that I was at, and I was chatting with him, and then I chatted with you at the last minute. We were kind of on our way out. This was a brunch at Maria Semple and George Meyer's apartment, which is just a few blocks away. Maria Semple of... Beloved uh, Seattle, right, a literary power couple. Where'd you go, Bernadette, and George Meyer of The Simpsons. Right. And so Who are married to one another. They're actually not. Oh, they're not married. They're boyfriend-girlfriend. All right, okay, sorry. But they also, they've been getting together for decades. It's really hard to tell. And so I, we, we chatted briefly. I was on my way into the party as you were on your way out. I knew of Ken from the, from the time in American culture where he was ubiquitous. Do you remember that? When he was, they were writing about him on, in the newspaper, like, can you believe this guy? Like, he looks exactly like you would think. <laughs> this good. I, I got it. I woke up like this, John. And Ken, surprisingly, uh, you, you, you wouldn't know it. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be suggested by your Jeopardy run, but he also knows a ton about rock and roll and bands and culture, film, et cetera, et cetera. So he was unfortunately not familiar with my band, but he went immediately and listened to all the albums and then became a super fan. I had heard your band on uh, like KXP, but I was not like, it's true that I was not a fan with the albums. And then from that point on, every time we saw each other, he would sit in my lap and take a selfie. <laughs> I, I really liked John's professorial air, and a few months later, I called him to see if he would be in a book video for me. I just wanted him to have a white jacket and a clipboard and be a fake scientist, which I didn't know. It was kind of his main skill set, I guess, is looking like a fake scientist. Uh, and we've been friends ever since. So that is the end of our time. Thank you very much for listening to the Omnibus Project and for coming to see our show.
Enjoy the rest of Bumbershoot, you guys. Give it up for John Roderick. America's sweetheart, Ken Jennings.